Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation informs our built environment, and this series is all about housing affordability. Think of it as an idiot's guide to housing, where in each episode I, someone who doesn't know much about this field, speak with an expert about a policy or economic approach that impacts housing affordability to make these often complex policies more understandable. This episode is about inclusionary zoning, a policy approach to affordable housing I first heard about in a public debate between housing activists, local councillors and a real estate industry representative. I asked Dr Kate Raynor, Research Fellow and Convener of the Affordable Housing Hallmark Initiative at the University of Melbourne, to explain to me what affordable housing was, what its potential and impact is, and how it might help with housing affordability. I also spoke with Samuel Stein, an academic at the Graduate Centre at the City University of New York and author of the book Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State, for an international perspective. Sam came to us from a city where inclusionary zoning has already been implemented and he spoke to me over Skype from New York, so you might hear some sirens in the background. I began by asking Kate to explain to me what zoning is and its historic function in the planning scheme. You might be able to hear the birds tweeting in her Queensland backyard. Zoning has a long history uh, and at its crux, it's been about creating regulations that separate incompatible land uses. So it originally came out of a lot of concerns of putting houses right next to like highly polluting factories or things like that. And it had a big you know, public health way to it that essentially says some land uses just shouldn't abut each other because they, they're not con- um, consistent with each other. So it, it came out of that. It's just a way of structuring the way that our land form functions. If you were fully a free market supporter, you would say that the market would just do that naturally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the government coming in to regulate that, and I, I think that's a good thing. So I think land use zoning has a lot of really positive attributes, but it's also either deliberately or accidentally created a lot of problems as well. And that's partially where the term inclusionary zoning comes from, because it's kind of setting itself against what other people would say is exclusionary zoning. And we have, you know, a lot of instances in Australia and in other countries around the world where our zoning, particularly in residential areas, what I know the most about, has really decreased housing affordability because it enforces minimum lot sizes and it generally supports lots of single family homes. So homes on their own that are big, big backyard, you know, swimming pool, that kind of thing. And the argument goes that, you know, this urban form isn't particularly sustainable. And it also is a lot more expensive because you can't put smaller lots in there. You can't put smaller homes in. You can't, you know, do other kind of built form interventions to mix in housing and shops and things like that as well. So zoning can also have a a more negative side because it's reducing the, the flexibility that we can use in approaching our built form. Sam provided a historical overview from an American context and also introduces the racial history of zoning. So zoning um, for the uninitiated are the rules that a government, usually at the municipal level, sets uh, for what can be built where. Um, And in most zoning schemes, um, there are rules about what we call use type, which means um, residential versus commercial versus industrial versus some mix of those. And then there are rules about what we call bulk, which means the the size of buildings, the amount of space between them or between the building and the street. Um, And there are other forms of zoning as well, but those are kind of like the, the bread and butter. 
And in the U.S. context, anyway, zoning emerges um, at the beginning of the 20th century. New York City was the first big city in the U.S. Uh, to have uh, a zoning scheme that was 1916, I want to say. Um, but it wasn't the first place in the U.S. to have zoning. At least one of the first was Modesto, California, um, a Central Valley uh, small city um, that established rules about what could be built where. And if we look at that uh, zoning code, if we look at the early New York City zoning code, we see that there's always been a political and economic dimension to it. There's even always been a racist dimension to it. Um, in the case of the Modesto, California zoning, they were basically saying that laundromats couldn't go in certain areas. And in that time and place, laundromats were uh, largely run by Chinese immigrants. And so that was a way of excluding certain immigrant groups from certain geographical spheres of the city. Uh, in New York City, a lot of the concern was about keeping working class Jewish garment workers away from high end uh, department stores that were buying the goods that they were producing. They didn't want the uh, the workers to be mixing with the customers. And so they set apart a separate manufacturing area from a separate commercial area. And of course there are you know, perfectly valid uh, reasons for zoning also including um, health, not mixing industrial and residential uses, for example, in ways that would um, potentially hurt the health of nearby residents, um, preventing uh, buildings from just overwhelming the street and casting shadows everywhere. But um, there's never been a period, as far as I can tell, where there was a kind of pure good use of zoning that was later corrupted. I think it's always been um, a manifestation of the politics of the time and place in which it's used. So now we jump back to Kate in Australia, who explains what inclusionary zoning is and how it might be applied. So inclusionary zoning is a land use planning intervention that is applied either at the state or the local level and it essentially says that if you want to develop a piece of land as a developer you need to provide a proportion of affordable housing or some other contribution in lieu of that as part of your development process and it takes all different forms uh, across the world in terms of which particular developments it applies to, how much affordable housing needs to be provided, whether it's a voluntary negotiated process or it's mandatory enforced process. But the essential crux is it's a government instigated intervention to provide affordable housing. And that housing is provided by a usually a private sector partner, the developer who wants to develop on a piece of land. When you speak about inclusionary zoning as having a potential to help alleviate housing crisis. What kind of impact could inclusionary zoning have as a policy lever? Does it need to be aligned with other other policy interventions? And I guess, are there any um, international precedents for the successful introduction of inclusionary zoning as a way to increase housing affordability? Yeah, so there's lots of international precedents for inclusionary zoning. In terms of international precedents for successful inclusionary zoning, it's a little bit harder. <laughs> it, it does happen in places and it has produced affordable housing. Yeah. One of the arguments that people who do not support inclusionary zoning would make about this policy intervention is that it drives up the price of other housing. And so essentially what they're saying is they're referring back to basic um, property economics, which says that a developer will buy a piece of land um, 
based on what they think they can sell it for in the future. So they'll look at a piece of land, they'll look at the zoning that says how many stories they can build above it. They work out, I'm going to be able to build maybe 40 units. I'll be able to sell them at maybe $650,000. And then they reverse engineer those figures and they come up with the price of land that they're willing to pay to purchase that piece of land. What people who oppose inclusionary zoning would say is that a developer has already walked through, worked through this process of how much to pay for the land. If they get to the end of that process and the government says to them, look, you need to take 20% of your um, units and sell them at you know, 30% less than you'd originally intended, then the developer is going to go, oh shit, I've lost all of this profit. And they pass on those extra costs of, of discounting those units, those affordable units onto the purchases of the other units. Um, yeah. And so people who oppose it say, you know, it's actually driving up the cost of our housing or it's stopping housing from being developed. What we see played out is that that generally doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> generally, the price is um, you don't see an increase in prices when you have inclusionary zoning in areas um, and you don't see a huge reduction in overall housing stock. But you also don't see a whole bunch of affordable housing being produced. So while it is working in many jurisdictions, particularly in the US, um, and it has been in place in some places for 20 years, 30 years, um, you are producing affordable housing, but it's not in huge volume. And that can be one of the challenges around it. But that said, inclusionary zoning does have a really important role to play. And it's one of the only levers that a local government can use to create affordable housing. And they can do things like they can set aside um, particular parts of the city and they can say all of Fisherman's Bend, like all of the suburbs that make up Fisherman's Bend, um, we're applying an overarching rule that says if you want to develop here, you have to give us 15% affordable housing. Fisherman's Bend is Australia's largest urban renewal project and it covers approximately 480 hectares in Melbourne. The zoning of this site has been controversial and after a new strategic framework and planning controls were introduced, Developers were offered the opportunity to go high in exchange for providing 6% inclusionary housing for low-income earners. And in that way, you know, they're creating affordable housing that wouldn't otherwise have been there, that the, the private sector is then building for them. When do these affordable housing overlays kind of come in in a project and does that impact, I guess, if a developer goes in knowing that there'll be a percentage of affordable housing, does that change the way that they can then budget for profit on the rest of the site? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And that's why it's so valuable to have a mandatory system that's really clear so that when um, developers are purchasing the land, they're factoring that into their, their calculations and then it works a lot better and people feel like they've been dealt with a lot more fairly. The challenge that we've had in Victoria is that we haven't had that stipulation in place so we're just now seeing changes in our legislation that mean that affordable housing is now a valid consideration in the planning scheme, which it never yeah. has been before. And affordable housing now has a definition, which it never had before, which means it was very, very hard to enforce at a local level when there was no state level legislation that was like the stick that was bashing developers on the head for not delivering. And it meant that when people were making decisions about land purchase, they didn't know about that costing. But if we could swap towards uh, situation where obligation for providing affordable housing was part of just already part of our the way that we thought about our cities it would make it a lot more efficient 
In Australia, inclusionary zoning has been implemented in a variety of capacities in South Australia, New South Wales and the ACT. In South Australia, 15% of new developments in all significant development projects should be affordable, including 5% for high-need groups. In New South Wales, 2% of housing in specified zones should comprise of affordable housing or developers are required to pay an affordable housing levy. In the ACT, 20% of new estates should include affordable housing. And you mentioned um, a definition of affordable housing then. What what does that mean in a, a Melbourne context at least? Yeah, so it's been a really wishy-washy word for a very long time and people <laughs> yeah. kind of just cherry-pick their definitions depending on what best suits them. But the official definition now is housing that is affordable to a very low, low or moderate income household. And then there's a whole bunch of numbers that are worked out through that where a, a very low income household has a certain proportion of our area median income. So I think, I can't remember these numbers off the top of my head anymore, but maybe they earn, you know, $30,000 a year. And then what is affordable to that household is um, no more than 30% of their income can be spent on housing mm-hmm. a week. So you kind of take those numbers and reverse engineer so you can come up with a number um, for what your rental costs might be um, and still be affordable to those households. This is probably a slightly mean question to ask you off the top of your head as well, but could you describe what the current need for affordable housing is in Melbourne or Victoria? Yeah, it's massive. Do you know that the waiting list for social housing in Victoria is something like 60,000 people? And we do know that the number of units missing in affordable housing is something like 120,000 across the state which are just mind-boggling numbers. They're just yeah. really, really big numbers. And then when you talk about a number like 60,000 people on the waiting list for social housing, and then you talk about the rate at which we're increasing our social housing stock, and it's something like, you know, 100 units a year, it's yeah. kind of laughable how big that need is and how small our responses to it are. So Kate has outlined some of the potentials for inclusionary zoning in Australia but I was interested to know what the impacts were in a place where inclusionary zoning had already been implemented. Sam Stein's written an article that challenges some of the ideas around how inclusionary zoning has been proposed as a way to alleviate the housing crisis, as it still works within a planning scheme that created the inequality in the first place. I asked him to explain why inclusionary zoning wasn't necessarily a quick fix for housing affordability. Well, uh, yeah, let's let's just define inclusionary zoning quickly. It's it's a way of zoning an area that requires um, that a certain amount of new construction be set aside for people who make a certain income. And so the inclusion part of it is um, including people of lower incomes than could live in a place earlier. Uh, and again, at least in the U.S. context, Inclusionary zoning is is an example of a tool that has moved away from its initial purpose and been put to use in a way that that doesn't really serve its original ideals. So the original uh, proposals for inclusionary zoning were about busting up suburbs. They were about um, breaking down exclusionary zoning. So they were targeting places that had, for example, minimum lot sizes that were so large Um, and uh, maximum occupancy levels that were so low that the only kind of use that could go there was basically either a mansion or at least 
a uh, detached single-family home that would be far too expensive for many working-class people, and that very often uh, came with a racial covenant that would say that it was only for one racial group, in this case, white Christians. And so inclusionary zoning was supposed to be a way of, of preventing that form of exclusionary zoning from covering such a large portion of the United States landmass. The way that inclusionary zoning is being used right now, at least in New York City, but also in a number of um, U.S. cities, is that it's, yeah. it's being proposed in places that are already quite dense um, and that are currently largely working class. And in New York City, that means largely either uh, recent immigrants or African-Americans. And so they're taking places that are currently more affordable than the rest of the city and they upzone them or they uh, zone them for even higher levels of density than they have right now. And they say that in the future, um, some percentage of them has to be somewhat affordable. And if you mm -hmm. look at the numbers, the affordability rates, the um, percentage that's that's set apart for uh, people making a certain amount of income, that income is generally higher than what people who lived in that area before made. And so even the affordable part becomes unaffordable to uh, the existing type of residence. And then it's, it's only a small portion of the building um, that is set aside at that unaffordable affordable rate. The rest of it is market rate, which in an overheated market like New York City's means luxury housing. And so you end up enabling gentrification in the, in the guise or in the language of providing affordable housing. It would be quite different if the areas of New York City that were in fact exclusionarily zoned, and there are about 25% of New York City that zone this way, if those areas were targeted for inclusionary zoning, it would be a very different conversation. But so far, none of them have been. Um, at all in the 21st century. And so the only places that get targeted for this kind of development um, are those places that are very vulnerable to gentrification. And then you get this kind of vicious cycle of claiming to solve gentrification by producing new, in, new entitlements for gentrification to occur. And when you mentioned idea of affordability um, being often higher than the pre-existing rates for the area. Is that affordability legislated in any way or is that just nominated by developers? Um, it's a bit of, the, of both. It is legislated with options. So in the New York City model, okay. <laughs> uh, the, there are essentially three different ways that you can um, do inclusionary zoning. And when a developer applies for a rezoning, let's say they've bought a parcel, a piece of land, and they want the zoning on it changed, they get to decide which mode of inclusionary zoning they want, and the city can say yes or no. So it's generally uh, structured so that you can have a higher percentage of the building um, set aside for uh, income-targeted development, but those incomes are higher or a lower percentage of the building set aside, but those incomes are lower. So that's the, the developer-initiated rezoning. You also have city-initiated rezonings. In that case, the local political representative basically gets to decide um, which of those options they prefer. 
and then the developers follow that lead. So it's a bit, uh, it's sort of legislated, it's sort of developer driven, uh, like a lot of things in New York City planning politics, it's, it's the amalgam of the two, which is exactly what I'm getting at with the concept of the real estate state. And in Capital City, your book, you're looking at the planning functions as a tool of the real estate market. Could you explain what you mean by this real estate state? Yeah, um, I, I coined the term the real estate state in the tradition of other phrases that start with the blank state. Um, so thinking about the welfare state, thinking about the carceral state, um, the warfare state, the administrative state, all these ways that people have talked about um, a faction of government that's usually aligned with a faction of capital or a faction of labor. Um, a lot of my work looks at the, the dynamics between labor, capital, and the state. And the key is not seeing those things as monoliths, but as internally fragmented establishments that you know are in competition with, with other parts. So the real estate state is in competition in some ways with the welfare state. Um, and there are ways that, that the two can be combined, I guess, in uh, certain forms of nonprofit housing, I guess. But uh, for the most part, they're they're at competing interests. And so the real estate state is the faction of the government that's interested in using the powers of government to raise land values and property values um, and to diminish the, the stock of off-market or affordable housing uh, for working class people. And in terms of how I've seen it operate, I mean, as a New Yorker who's involved in both labor and tenant politics, um, it's quite obvious the power of real estate um, in pretty much all spheres of government. And the, the saying in the New York City tenant movement is uh, real estate is to New York as oil is to Texas, um, Texas having the, the biggest oil economy of any place in the United States. So we see the, the power of the real estate lobby kind of lurking around um, so that it becomes very difficult to propose really transformative housing programs that don't somehow also benefit the real estate uh, machine. And it becomes even hard to propose other forms of planning intervention like environmental benefits or um, you know, transit expansions that don't somehow bring in an element of real estate capital to benefit. So thinking about planning then more broadly, um, do you think there are there are any conditions where planning's able to operate outside of this real estate state or it's always complicit in perpetuating those conditions? Um, no, I don't think that it's an always and forever proposition. Um, even in cities that currently feature a, a strong real estate state, that hasn't always been the case. Um, I trace in my book the, the role that the deindustrialization of many central cities has played in enabling this rise of the real estate state. Um, and that's for complicated reasons, but the short version is when manufacturing was still a major presence in these cities, there was another arm of capital that had very different sets of interests and demands on the state. And so the state itself was kind of pushed and pulled in these different directions. Um, in places where we're getting more of a monoculture of real estate economy, that's where you really see it flourishing. So there are other places in my country, in your country, in the world, 
um, that don't have a particularly strong real estate state. And if they're capitalist economies, they might have some other industry that's really pulling the strings. Um, but it's certainly not a given. Even within um, cities like mine, there is always room for change. So uh, in the last couple of years, we've had some major electoral uh, victories on the left, especially at the, the level of the state legislature, which is the intermediary between the city and the federal government. And because of that, we've mm -hmm. been able to pass some really monumental pro-tenant legislation. If the real estate state was all powerful, that wouldn't have happened. So even in places uh, like New York City that have this strongly established real estate politics, there, there is room. And I think that in places like this, there's a, a great deal of power that is uh, able to be harnessed by housing movements, by tenant movement especially, that can challenge these dynamics. It's just that, um, you know, it's difficult. But we're seeing right now in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic, um, immediately we saw an eviction moratorium. And there's a push for a citywide rent strike May 1st that I believe is going to go far beyond just this city and could even be a national call, after which point we could see things really start to change or we could see things return to the status quo. But uh, there's never a situation where planners should be kind of allowed to go along with the uh, very broken system that we have in place just because that's the way it is. We should always expect better and we should always demand better. And if we think about demanding better in an Australian context, that might be appropriately considered inclusionary zoning. Ask Kate what the barriers to achieving this were. Is it property council pushback or government disclination, a lack of public appetite, or perhaps a combination of all three? <laughs> yeah. Historically, it has been, there's been a very strong lobby presence pushing against mandatory inclusionary zoning. And, and that lobbying group would make all the exa exact same arguments I've spoken about before about increasing housing costs for everyone else and reducing housing supply overall. Um, so I think there's a big vested interest in avoiding inclusionary zoning. But what I find really interesting is um, my colleagues and I are working on a research project at the moment um, based in Melbourne, and we put out a survey to, I think, 160 members of the affordable housing industry across local government, state government, private industry, and the community housing provider sector. Yeah. And across the board, we asked them, what would be your preference, mandatory inclusionary zoning, and voluntary inclusionary zoning, or no inclusionary zoning. And pretty much everyone we surveyed said that their preference would be for mandatory inclusionary zoning. So I think there's a lot of industry appetite. I think there's a lot of government appetite. It's just, it's a little bit complex to work out how to do it. And it would take grandfathering. So saying that, you know, developments that have already been, like land that's already been purchased or developments that have already been decided upon, wouldn't it wouldn't impact them. Um, but there's no reason we can't do it. If you're interested in Kate's work and discovering that there is not just no reason we can't do it, but all of the reasons to do it, you can find more of her work via the University of Melbourne's Architecture, Building and Planning website. Her work as a research fellow focuses on affordable housing, high-density housing and urban consolidation. Sam Stein's book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State, is published through Verso. You can also read his work on zoning and housing affordability online at The Guardian and Jacobin.